0: Greetings, all. What is the good word? Thank you for stopping the scroll and spending some of your valuable time with us. This is the Coptimizer podcast, and I'm your host, Patrick Flannelly, retired chief of police and all-around wannabe renaissance man. Here, we look to spend some time with leaders and pioneers that have a passion for public safety and those who look to build strong and resilient individuals and organizational cultures, both of which result in stronger communities. We look across industries with a focus on peak performance. Our biggest questions, what can I do to squeeze every little drop of life out of each day? How do I get a little bit better today than I was yesterday? And how can I tap into the energy that makes it all possible? While our focus is on first responders and those in public service, the lessons shared here on the Coptimizer podcast are universal. Our goal is to hire healthy, retire healthy, and maximize impact in our personal and professional lives in that time in between. To drive value and squeeze every drop out of our performance so we can be awesome for our families, our departments, and our communities. Better performing officers make for better performing organizations. This is not a complicated truth. It is the simple truth. From the top cop to the street cop and all those working in support of high performing organizations, this show is for you. It's time to Coptimize. Welcome back to the Coptimizer Podcast. This is uh, your host, Patrick Planler. We got another exciting episode. I'm excited to introduce uh, retired chief Jeffrey Scott from the great state of Ohio or should I say the Ohio.
1: That's right, the <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> Let's get it I, right. I don't
0: even know I don't even know if you're a Buckeye or not but you know all you pretentious Buckeyes, the Ohio State University.
1: <laughs> well, I hate to bust your bubble, but I'm a Division Two fan. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, hey, I, all the Division One schools, that's great, good for them. But uh, I'm a, I'm a Division Two guy. So, Ashland University, Eagles, all the way.
0: Well, I grew up on Ashland Street in West Lafayette, home of the Boilermakers. So, there you, there go. there you go. All right. Hey, Jeffrey, I really appreciate you spending some of your time with us today. Uh, We got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm excited about jumping into this. But before we do that, uh, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you wound up where you are today.
1: Yeah, my my pathway to get where I've been and still going. Um, I started out as a firefighter paramedic professionally in the uh, northwest sector of the city of columbus uh, station 92 and spent time there Uh, went to arson investigator school and as a result of all of that i ended up in law enforcement full-time worked for a very busy city police department up at mansfield ohio Um, so that's kind of where i got my teeth cut and really learned the ropes it was a very busy department we did about fifty thousand calls for service a year So um, a lot of good officers that I uh, worked with, and uh, they mentored me as well. So, you know, here I am, this young kid, um, fresh out of the academy, still trying to get his feet wet. And I I am still thankful to this day that I keep in contact with um, several officers from that department, um, have coffee, even go to football games and um, really appreciate you know, the people that invested in me because that actually helped me in the next parts of my career. Um, So went on to be a captain at a police department where I should have never been in the first place. Um, (laughs) Still love the chief. He's a dear friend, but I had no business. I was too young, came from a big city, you know, police department to this small town. You can't, you can't take big city into a small town without some discipline and some training. But all that being said, learn my lesson there. Um, but I've always seemed to fall in these great buckets, right, and crawl my way out and end up succeeding to the next level just because I've got great people behind me and have been pushing me. So all that being said, I ended up going back to grad school. And uh, worked for a national organization for a while, maintaining or um, actually in charge of 250,000 certifications nationwide. And after I got my grad school done, I actually opened up my own business. Um, So I had a lot of things happening all at the same time. And I wound up working for the federal government Hmm. of all places and learned a ton working for NASA. In their office of protective services. So that's essentially the federal government's term for police department. And uh, from there, you know, I was mentored by the chief over protective services or the police department there who was a retired um, secret service agent. And he got me a lot of background and training as well. And I, he encouraged me. And then I ended up taking over the chief of police position for an agency on the east side of uh, Cleveland and had a great career there till I retired and went to be with the Ohio Peace Officer Training Commission as the executive director. So uh, great experience there. Um, that's a whole long drawn out story why I, why I was only there for about five months. But the reality of that one was um, living at the academy five to six days a week, And only seeing my family one day a week. Uh, Those things don't work out really well.
0: Yeah, that's That's a tough life.
1: Yeah, but a lot of good people uh, that worked there. The unfortunate part was about a year later, they ended up laying off or not even laying off. They fired all 38 of their instructors and shut the academy down for a while. It it was just a hot mess. But we can go into that story um, another another podcast. So (laughs) other than that, um, left there. Um, I've always been, I've always had my own company. So, you know, I've been doing evidence room management and instruction. I've been doing auditing for departments and their, their evidence and property rooms, uh, national speaking. So I've been out on tour, uh, been to chiefs of police conferences as a featured speaker. Um, I'm a court expert. So I've you know, I get called by prosecutors, defense attorneys. yes, i I do work on the dark side every once in a while. um, <laughs> is it really the dark side though, or is it just it's really not? It's
0: just the side of uh, what does the evidence tell us
1: exactly. and, and what do best
0: practices tell us
1: and that's what it boils down to. and you know, if officers would just do what they're supposed to do and departments would do what they're supposed to do, um I wouldn't have to go into those cases. so Um, But, you know, we do call it the dark side in law enforcement, Um, but those are far and few in between. I you know do some stuff for some prosecutors. Um, So, you know, I've had a really great career, a lot of great experiences. But the one thing that I've always gained is how do I pay it forward? How do I take what I have been given and how do I invest that into other people and other officers and other agencies? And help them to succeed. And through our discussion that we're going to have today, which you know, like you said, we're going to cover a lot of different topics. It's it's how I pay it forward, and I really see this opportunity that you know we're having today, and the training that I do, or if I'm out on the road speaking, that it's how do we pay it forward? How do we make a difference in the lives of the officers that are out on that street every single day doing this really tough job? But we want to make sure that we're doing it constitutionally, and we want to make sure that we're growing and getting better, not getting weaker, and not making really stupid mistakes and and errors in our thinking, big picture. So we're, and I know we're going to be talking about that stuff. So <laughs> there's the intro, and um, let's roll. All right. Well, I think everybody now has a good idea about why
0: uh, uh, we connected and wanted to get on the show and talk. I, I think... One of the cool things about your life and work experience is that you bring a perspective from uh, a lot of different angles. And sometimes uh, we lack that in policing. We lack perspective. We see the world through our own lens, our own agency, our own experiences. And then if we don't take the opportunity to expand our horizons and uh, and seek out other opinions other ideas other ways of doing things then we can really limit ourselves right there's a, there's some psychological terms for that but um, you know and in the end you, you know when you look outside you find well maybe we are doing things well but you also find maybe things that we can there's things we can improve on
1: well, so, and that's a mantra that we should be living by every day. You know, when I was a chief of police, I had a sticker on my computer monitor that said this, what can I do better today? And every day is a new day. So, you know, if you anybody, anybody's ever taken the right training, racial intelligence uh, training and engagement um, with Randy and Linda, you'll know that mantra. What can I do better today? And every day is a new day. It's a new opportunity. And, you know, I learned that in grad school. You bring up a very good point that, you know, we get better through education, through training, but also our diversity in relationships. Um, You know, I'm an FBI grad, um, class 265. And I will tell you that was one of the greatest highlights of my entire career is to getting to know so many people and opening up my mind that, you know, oftentimes we think of our state, right? Right. We're so isolated within our state of Ohio uh, where I'm at. And, and I realized that I've got to expand beyond those boundaries that there's other agencies throughout the nation and throughout the world that, you know, sometimes why do we reinvent the wheel when other people have already invented it? So why don't we leverage on what their successes were? And maybe take it to a new height or a new level within our own agency. So, you know, when we broaden our perspective, and I learned that over the weeks that I was there at the Academy in Washington or, you know, at Quantico, um, expand your mind, be willing to think outside the box, be willing to think outside your agency and just the little berg or the, the the mentality that it only happens here. Or we're going to okay. do it our way because that's, you know, I hate that where people, you know, I ask people, hey, why do you do that? Well, it's just the way we've always done it. <laughs> I hate that. I absolutely hate, well, I shouldn't say I hate. I really dislike uh, those kind of statements because that tells me that you're not willing to open up and look outside your bubble. And that's where you make a lot of mistakes when you're not looking outside the bubble. Amen. And you said something that it, when you were introducing
0: yourself too, that when you went from a larger community to a smaller community and you made some mistakes, um, you know, that's that's a natural process. And that means that you got outside of your comfort zone and you were stretching yourself. And that's, of course, where you know growth happens. Right. It, you know, every growth opportunity stands on the other end of <laughs> generally a mistake. Or some type of stress. And we look at, we talk about stress as being a bad thing a lot of times, but stress is also a good thing. So, you know, stress is what makes, if you don't, it, and, and Andrew Huberman talks about this a lot. If you if you ever listen to his podcast, he's he's brilliant. But he, it's like, yeah, if you don't stress your muscles, they're never going to grow and they're never going to get bigger. So, you know, it's easy not to go into the gym and lift, um, but there's going to be no growth from it. You're not going to fail at anything in the gym when you don't go um but you're not going to get better either so yeah it, i think sometimes we're a little risk averse in policing um yep. and that for a lot of reasons uh, a lot of them are good reasons very legitimate reasons to be risk averse because uh y- you know when you wind up on the on the wrong end of, of a lawsuit right you you work for quote well, your quote the dark side um you know, I just call it a side, right? You know, it's two sides of of every coin and and every argument. Uh, if you're wrong, you're wrong. If you're right, you're right. You should be able to defend yourself if you're if you're doing the right thing. And you know, sometimes you got to pay the price if you if you made a mistake. Um, what we just want to avoid are the willful mistakes or the negligent mistakes. And um, so, absolutely, that, my saying always was. I don't mind making mistakes. And if we're going to make a mistake, let's make a mistake falling on our
1: face, not on our ass, Um, you know, because, (laughs) you know, we want to be pushing forward. Absolutely. Um, You know, that brings up a good example that um, I have been very active with the First Amendment community. And I know that that just probably raises the hair on the back of the necks of a lot of people. But, you know, I realized a couple of years ago, and I just happened on it by by total chance that here I am, I'm sitting in my home office, which that's where I'm at right now. And, you know, behind me is my bookshelf. It's loaded full of all kinds of projects and things that I'm working on right now and, and just material that I'm researching. And I was doing a bunch of stuff. So I'm also a legal instructor and I've been doing a lot of research on Second Amendment and Second Amendment audits, because those seem to be the thing, right, a couple of years ago. And then, you know, how officers respond, how they're reacting. And then all of a sudden, as I'm doing this research, and I I look at hundreds of hours of videos, I mean, can't you tell from the dark circles (laughs) under my eyes that, you know, I've got multiple, I've got four screens sitting here right in front of me. And I've got, you know, screens up so I can do typing and and gather quotes. And, and th- so I'm really taking it all in. And here a First Amendment video pops up. And it was David Wharton out of uh, Texas. He does a lot of First Amendment audits down there. And I started watching a lot of his videos. And as a result of that, I'm watching all of these officers. And I'm starting to get to know 3802 from Texas Penal Code. And basically, in a nutshell, Texas Penal Code 3802 says you cannot demand ID until the person's been arrested. Now, you can have consensual conversation, all of those wonderful things. And if you ask for the ID and they give it up readily, no problem. That's consensual. But you can't demand it unless you have physically arrested them. Not even under so, Terry, like a, with a. Not even Terry v. Article. Ohio. Oh. Nope. So, and remember, Terry v. Ohio is for weapons. And I'm I'm sitting there watching officers going into pockets of of people, and it's like, what are you doing? You can't do that. So, you know, unless you can articulate a reason to go into it because there's a dangerous ordinance or weapon, but beyond that, you're violating the person's Fourth Amendment rights. So, you know, all of that being said, I'm watching all these videos. And then I start to make connections with some of these First Amendment auditors. And one of them that I've made connections with is Sean Paul Reyes, which is a Long Island audit. And I've watched a ton of his videos. I was actually just up in Danbury, Connecticut um, at his trial because what they did to him was wrong. And I had conversations with a lot of people of, you know, how can we improve law enforcement? So the interesting thing is I was just down in Georgia um, last year twice. The Georgia state police chiefs had me down two times. And as a result of conversations, we, you know, I had a chance to talk to hundreds of chiefs at their conferences. And we talked about First Amendment auditing and the mistakes that we're starting to witness with officers. And, And it's like, You know, I've heard the word baiting and all of that stuff going on, but I would argue that they're not baiting you. It's just your ignorance to the law. And if you're ignorant to what you are doing as right or wrong, and you don't understand if it is right or wrong, you might really want to rethink this. So, you know, even the videos I'm watching right now are why the officer even make contact in the first place. Was there a legal... Violation of the person giving an example standing on the sidewalk, pointing a camera at a building from public property, or a public right-of-way, or a sidewalk. You know the Supreme Court's already ruled that the eyes cannot trespass. So whatever the eyes can see is fair game, right? So, you know, a lot of these officers, what's happening is they're walking up and going, "Well, you know, we got a call, and because we got a call." I have to have your ID. Well, okay. Why did they, were they breaking the law? Was there something that, you know, they violated? So what's happening is the officers are going down a path, but had the department trained them and, and covered the constitution in greater depth than what I think we do, and start working scenarios and all these things. So, And it's even funny with some of the videos I see where the officers say, oh, yeah, I've seen your videos a 100 times. But it's kind of funny. Then why are you doing what you're doing? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Because you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over again yeah. because it's been so just beat into your head. Um, so my goal now, because I have been working with Sean Paul and uh, Detective Bannock, Um, here in Ohio, um, you know, we're, we're trying to get the message out to officers how to have better interaction, if they are even going to have interaction. Because what we're teaching officers, why do you even need to have the contact? If they're not violating the law, and you've already seen that they're not breaking the law, why are you making contact? That's the best way to keep yourself out of risk.
0: Yeah, I will so, say
1: the caveat to that is
0: uh, and we don't have to get too far into this, but the, right. the uh the problem becomes when the First Amendment auditors start interjecting themselves into call response. Correct. And, yeah, we we've had a group of them in my city, uh very prolific, um, you know, using scanners, uh, following officers around from call to call. Um it, you know, it's yeah the office you know it took us a little bit to kind of figure out what they were doing why they were doing it and then you know get ourselves into a into a good training position you know to make sure that we don't you know we didn't repeat any mistakes because we made a few mistakes early on too but um you know the 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 downside to what you see some of the auditors i think do a very good job and are very professional they're Mm -hmm. polite they don't interfere And they don't cause any type of commotion. Sometimes just their presence can stir people up not just, not the officers, but you know, the, the people that officers are interacting with and right. um, You know, we, you know, we're, you know, I won't get into the details, but I, there was a case in my, my former agency where, you know, there's, you know, potential litigation now because of an interaction between a first amendment auditor and a, and a person who was being investigated for DUI. So um, yeah, there was a bad outcome there, but I, I do agree with you that, uh, for our own worst enemies sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and cops speak. Yeah. With the second amendment guys too. Um, you know, it's like, whatever, uh, there, there is a, I think there's also a fine line between, you know, some of the first amendment auditors claiming that they're there as, as a member of the media Um, I I think there's a case where you can be made where they're also there to provide entertainment and, and they're, they're selling the information that they're collecting, they're creating content and then they're later selling it. So that's a whole nother discussion, but the second amendment guys, you know, one of the things that we run into, and I know we see it all over is you'll get somebody that pulls up to the mall, um, or a shopping center or one of the busiest stretches of roadway and they climb out of their car and they get the AR-15 and they strap it on their back and then they go walking down uh walking down the side of the road and of course what what do citizens do in this day of the active shooter uh the concerns of terrorism they call the police and you know the police then have an obligation to make. okay well is it somebody that's just practicing their Second Amendment right? Or is it somebody that's getting ready to go do harm? So there's after a while, generally, you know, the officers get to know who it is, then they can kind of, you know, quickly make a determination about whether this is something they they really need to intervene in or not. Uh, but in those in those first encounters, these people and they and they recognize that, right? As soon as the officers adapt and adjust to them, what do they do? They move on. They, move they on. go, they move to the next city. And yep. they do the same thing. So, yeah. yeah, there's been there's been some crazy ones. We There was a guy that got arrested in a in a county um, adjacent to ours because he did that. And then not only not only did he get his weapon out, but he was like low crawling up on a building like, yeah, like crawling around, you know, with with a, with a firearm. And that, of course, raised.
1: I'm it's going to bring alarm. That's going to bring concern. <laughs> like,
0: what the hell is this guy doing? And, uh, you know, I've always thought, it's like, what? I mean, don't we have, don't we have better things to do? Uh, I get, I guess maybe there, there, there's always a, there's always a benefit to people that do silly things like this, right? Because it's an opportunity to learn and, and get better. Right. Just like, yep, exactly. It's like your sticker says now, of course yeah. I have the one that I had Jocko's, hanging outside one of his uh, prints hanging outside of my office it says all your excuses are lies and uh, that that was for me and uh, my deputy chief and there were some people uh, in our department that didn't like that they, they 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 took offense to it which is i i chuckle about it now but um, oh gosh that's always, good always, always always yeah there's there's re- really small i have talked about this on a previous podcast but there's pre there's really small print in there you know, so if you look at it just at the, you know, at the, at the large print, right? What, what do people do? We make a snap judgment, a quick reaction. And, and what do we do? We internalize the message that we see. And then if you take, you know, and so I use that as a good conversation starter. It's like, you know, sorry, you're offended by my print, but that's not for you. That's for me. And, and And if you take a moment to read the small print, you'll understand it better. Like, I'm not good enough. I, you know, I'm too fat. I'm too slow. You know, all these things that we, all these little lies that we tell ourselves and then we begin to believe these things. So yeah, it, it falls right into your mantra of, of, you know, how do we, how do we be better? Yep. Amen. We're already, we're already off the rails. I, yes, I'm going I'm, I'm to bring us back on. So one of the, so we met after I saw a comment that you had made on a post uh, about, um, And it's up to you. I don't don't care if we talk about the specific agency or not. It really doesn't matter at this point um, because it is out in the public domain. But a a sheriff in in Ohio had um, there was a a story in a newspaper where he was uh, making a. uh, Was it a complaint or really was he, you know, an objection to the fact that he sent a group of deputies through the academy and two of them did not pass the exit standards for the physical fitness test and therefore couldn't become certified. His argument was I've just made a, a significant investment in these two employees. And now I don't get to reap the benefit of their employment, you know, in, in, in the investment, because all other things considered, the only thing that they didn't pass was the physical fitness requirement. And I come from a very, uh, uh, I I'm never been, accused of being um less than outspoken about my position about fitness and nutrition (laughs) and wellness in the policing space so uh when i saw your comment i jumped right on board i was right there with you and you know of course the first comment that you know or the, the the counter argument that comes to my mind is why would you send two people to the
1: academy that couldn't pass the physical fitness standards right well, in that, that situation. So I'm just going to say, this is my professional opinion. Everything we're talking about is my professional opinion. I don't represent any agency or anybody that I'm contracted with. So these are my personal opinions today. I've got to protect my first amendment rights too. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all the fine print, all the fine detail. Yeah. So I get to hang out with some really cool attorneys. Um so, anyways, it's kind of interesting. So, this sheriff, along with a couple others, um, went to the Hot Peace Officer Training Commission, and they have um, deputies on their department or agency that then wanted to promote into road patrol. So, here in the state of Ohio, the the sheriff's first obligation is the housing of prisoners, right? Second obligation is court security, and then third. Is then, you know, protection of the county um, and serving justice, which we would equate to road patrol. Right. So, you know, for a lot of sheriff's office, they bring folks in their jailers first or corrections officers. Sorry. And then they can promote into other areas within the department, including getting to go to the academy and being uh, road certified in Ohio. You have you have to go to do the academy to be a corrections officer. But that's one certification. But then the other certification then is to become a peace officer. So in a nutshell, she was very upset because she had two that couldn't pass the final physical fitness in order to sit for the exam. So she shows up to, and it's all public record. It's all on video. I mean, you can go pretty much anywhere and find it now. And I'm not trying to be hypercritical of her, but... I'm really concerned with the mentality of a law enforcement leader coming before the commission and asking for standards to be lowered. And that's what really set me off. Because one, I don't like the physical fitness standard that Ohio has anyways. I was very vocal about that even before I became the executive director Even as the executive director of the Howe Peace Officer Training Commission and Academy, I was very vocal. And in fact, so much so that a couple of my resident experts, um, I, I tasked them with putting together a SME, Subject Matter Expert Board, to start exploring alternatives to the traditional Cooper standards that were being used. Now, I want to make this very clear because I'm certain there's probably going to be comments in the chat and I'm not here bashing Cooper standards. However, a lot of people don't understand Cooper does not support the law enforcement standards anymore. And they haven't since about 2015, 2016. A lot of people didn't realize that.
0: A lot of people still don't realize that. So I think you're going to be educating a lot of people with that comment uh, today. And that was one of the things that I was excited
1: to talk about absolutely and and knowing that here's the thing that people have to be aware of and I and I've had conversation with several of the the current commissioners that were unaware that the standards are no longer supported by the organization that designed them so if there's anybody that understands law and legal Right. I'm not, I'm not an attorney. So I need to make that very clear. Even though I teach the legal section um, or I, I'm a legal instructor, I'm not an attorney. However, it doesn't take a brain rocket scientist, right? Or a mad scientist to figure out the small print and just read the code and, and understand liability, vicarious liability. So if you're a police chief, you know, you and I were, we understood vicarious liability. <laughs> Would you stand beside or behind something for your agency that's no longer supported by the people that designed it? And a logical leader would be able to reduce in their minds, I would hope, that, you know what, that might be a problem. So I told the commissioners that I was speaking to, the ones that that still speak to me, um, and asked my opinion and asked for some advice and god bless them for doing that cuz i'll tell them the truth anybody knows me i'm i'm an open board i'll i'll tell you what i think basically in a nutshell i said look do you realize cooper doesn't support those anymore and you have a standard in ohio right now that's unsupported so if you get sued what what are you going to be able to stand on commissioner what are you going to be able to sit on the stand and testify to that you're using a standard that's no longer supported. Now, I'm not saying the standards are wrong, but what's interesting, though, is that a lot of states, including our military, right, has now been looking at more job-task-oriented physical fitness standards than these traditional run a mile and a half, run 300 meters, um, you know, timed 300-meter run, uh, sit-ups, push-ups. It was kind of interesting, the Army, even in some of their research, when you go out and look at the research that's available oh, yeah. that they were using to put their standards together, they got rid of sit-ups. Well, there's a reason why, because it's it, it's really not a true assessment, if you will, of core strength. So they have looked at other avenues. And the other thing is, 2 sit-ups are horrible for your back. It's no wonder that a lot of police officers have issues with their backs that, you know, here we've been pushing, 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 pushing all these years for sit-ups, but talk to a chiropractor, talk to my chiropractor. She'll tell you, don't do those anymore. They're horrible for your back. But yet, you know, that's what we push and pushed for years. Even when the science was telling us stop doing it, what did we do? We kept using it. So why did we keep using it? Because it's, it's just what we've always done. <laughs> oh, come on. So having all of that said, I pointed out when I was the executive director, I said, look, we need to go to a job task obstacle course. It's a truer assessment. Now, some of the Cooper people will argue, okay, look, we do the mile and a half run because we're looking at cardiovascular capacity. Yeah. I get that. I used to be a runner. I can't run anymore because my shins are my shins are blown out. So the shin splints are terrible. The FBI Academy just blew them right out of me. Thank God I got the yellow brick road done. Um, But after that, I had to give it up. So but I've had to look at all their alternatives for my cardiovascular, which there's a lot of options out there. So I get the idea that the mile and a half is, you know, we use that as a, as a guide or a tool for cardiovascular capacity, but I can tell you most of the foot pursuits that I was ever in, in my career didn't last more than probably an eighth of a mile. The longest one that I had lasted about, I don't know, eight or nine minutes through backyards, creeks, fences, and that wasn't running the whole time either because I was out of breath and the suspect was out of breath and you know thank god that i had just a little bit extra left in me and basically when i got to the point to put cuffs on him he already was just laying on the ground and i was trying to get to him with every you know thing that i had left um but i'm glad for the cardiovascular capacity that's what allowed me to last as long as i did and finish the job but There's other ways that we can do that. There's other ways that we can assess officer strength, their, you know, their capacity cardiovascular wise, uh, their muscular strength. So I'll give you an example. One of the ones that I really like is Florida uh, that the state highway patrol uses down there. And, you know, you can look up what they're doing and it's very job task oriented, and yes, you have the, the the sprint that's in there. You've got dragging the dummy. You've got firing the dry, you know, dry firing the weapon. You've got over tables, under tables, crawling. Um, you know, there's a lot of different tasks and skills that need to get done. But here's the other thing, too. Who are the other ones that do job task type obstacle courses? Well, it's our brothers and sisters in the fire service and EMS, and they've been doing it for years. If anybody remembers back with the fire department with the combat challenge. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, this is dating me a little bit because back when I was a full-time firefighter, the, the combat challenge was kind of the standard. Well, I shouldn't say kind of. It was. That was the standard. And a lot of agencies required their firefighters to go through that every single year. It was mandatory. And we worked out. We had to work out in order to keep ourselves to be able to do that. But also we did that for our own health and wellness. You know, the department, gosh, this is 30 some years ago that we were doing this. But then where was law enforcement? It, you know, it's almost like we're, we're trying to play catch up. And the fire department's always one step ahead of us. Um, you know, now they have seen these new obstacle courses that they've come up with. And for a lot of departments now, it is mandatory, absolutely mandatory that you have to do these every year. And I'm advocating that it be a standard in Ohio and nationwide that an officer needs to do a JTA obstacle course every single year. You know, whether it, it goes from recruit to retirement, it's the R squared or what I call R squared. And it has to be, it just needs to be because if, if we want to talk about officer wellness, we have to talk about physical fitness. We have to talk about financial fitness, and we also need to talk about mental fitness. If you don't have those three things together, then you don't even talk about a wellness program because those are critical to longevity of police officers or anybody in public safety. It's not just law enforcement. It's anybody in public safety, and I, I'll put fire, EMS, and corrections all in that bundle of public safety. It's paramount that we do those things to have longevity. You know, when I look at how we talked about retirement years ago, that hey, you'll be lucky as a police officer when you retire to live three or four years. That's just kind of the standard, right? It's still well, that way. I I'm not okay with that. No, I, I am not I, okay with it. I don't. I don't so, think
0: anybody should be okay with it, especially me, since I'm just now finishing year one of retirement. So <laughs>
1: why? You know, but why do we accept that? So now this takes it back circle, right? Back to the sheriff coming to the Peace Officer Training Commission and saying, look, you either need to get rid of this stuff or you need to to reduce the, the requirements. Well, let me ask this question. What were your officers doing or your sheriff's deputies? Well, they're not even sheriff's deputies at the time. What were those recruits doing throughout the academy? Now, most academies that I'm aware of, if you go full-time, it's usually about three months. If you go part-time, it's usually about six to seven months here in Ohio. Please explain to me what you're doing for three months full-time in an academy or even part-time six or seven months. You already know what the requirements are. So what are you doing to get there? Now, I'm not faulting just the recruit. I'm going to put pressure on the academy itself. If you know these and I'm going to actually put it on the other recruits. If you see other people struggling, isn't it that we're supposed to be instilling discipline, isn't it? We're we're supposed to be instilling teamwork and 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 all of those attributes of teamwork that if we see somebody struggling, isn't it our job as public servants to try to lift that person up to get them out of the situation that they're in? Aren't these attributes that we ask of public safety workers? Isn't this what we ask of police officers or sheriff's deputies or troopers to help each other, but that helping each other also helps the people that we serve. So are we willing to go in and, and, and literally tear apart the standards that are minimum, right? Those are minimum standards. We're going to tear yeah. all those apart for two people who didn't have the wherewithal to get it done. So I would question the mentality. I'm I'm not questioning their personality. I'm sure they're probably pretty good people, right? Yeah, probably but, smart, probably, you know, otherwise, you know, competent, but the, competent potential. But guess what? if <laughs> academics isn't everything, right? There's there's certain disciplines that have to go with the job and that includes physical fitness.
0: Yeah. I so, can, make, I can, break, I can make this really simple for anyone. That's even on the fence right now. It, and no pun intended here, but if you're a person, if you're a police leader that's thinking that this is anyhow, okay. I I give this example all the time. Um, and I, I do a wellness presentation, Uh, I've traveled around, I've done this. Um, and I tell the story early in my career, I went to an alarm call, um, at a local car dealer business ship, you know, they fenced off at night, um, in an area where we had an active burglar that was working and it was a very, you know, we are busy. We are a busy agency. And, um, I did have a backup that night and he got there. Um, And, you know, I'm not, this isn't to to criticize that my, my fellow responding officer, but um, I didn't think twice. I went up, it was an eight foot chain link fence up and over. I went, got to the other side and I turn around, guess what? My partner's not coming over the fence. He can't climb the fence. So, and again, I've told this story a few times, so I'll tell the short version, you know, I guess, you know, we can argue all night long about what I should or should not have done. You know, I made the 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 decision on my own that I was just gonna go clear the building. I told him, Hey, if I find something, I'll I'll call you. Uh not that it was gonna do any good. I guess we would call somebody else uh to come and help, but I went and cleared the building and everything turns out fine, right? In that case, in and, and I just had a post on LinkedIn yesterday, right? Like, how often do we do we mistake uh good outcomes for good processes? <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. It was a, I had a good outcome, you know, and I was rewarded, Uh, even though I made a bad decision, you know, quite frankly, you know, right. what should I have done? Well, you know, you know, made a, a decent threat and ass- assessment, you know, is, is what's the likelihood of this being a, a real, a, a real alarm and not a false alarm? In, in either case, the point is, is that, you know, my partner couldn't get over the fence. And, you know, you would hope that in a situation like that, That would be a motivating factor because you can make an argument all day long, a hundred different reasons about why, okay, that officer can still provide a lot of value, uh, but just even though they can't climb a fence and I'm like, okay, well, let's go, let's, let's just go back to this week, right? This, this episode will air, you know, a few weeks down the line here. So Nashville won't be front and center in people's mind, but now let me ask you this, Uh, that officer shows up and that's a school on the other side of the fence and that's how they need to get in. Can they get in? And, and and you could, you you know, you can extrapolate all kinds of examples. But if you can't get over the fence, then you can't get there. And most importantly, if you ask any member of the public, what's your expectation for an officer's level of preparedness? Do you think that they should be able to climb a fence? You know, to be able to get to you and help you if you're in your backyard, you're having a heart attack. Um, you ever had to? pop a fence to get into somebody's backyard. You know, I can't even count the times I, I went over fences in my career. So um, yeah, I mean, there, right there. So what you're telling me is you want to reduce the standard so you can provide a lower uh, level of service to your community, but you still want to pay them the same and you still want to have the, I uh, just, we could, yeah, we could go
1: all day, but that's, yeah, that's at the, you know, the root of it. Yeah. And, and, It's actually interesting. Um, I have a health and wellness short segment that I do. um, And one of the examples I use is an officer out West. And again, I, I don't necessarily pick on officers. We just bring it on ourselves. And it's a training opportunity. So I use it. And this officer was put through a couple tasks because of his weight. I mean, grossly overweight. He couldn't even get down on the floor to do CPR. And I had to sit there and think, you know, if that was my relative, my loved one, or another officer, or a corrections officer, or a firefighter, paramedic, whoever, doesn't matter who it is, they can't get down on the floor and perform CPR. He couldn't even do compressions for even 30 seconds. So, you know, we're, we're called into a lot of different situations that, you know, we can't be perfect in everything, right? Right. But those are some pretty basic, basic things. And I'm not saying you got to be at the top of your shape. You don't have to be willing to go out and run, you know, Olympic style marathons. But you should be able to get into the fight and back up your partner and and hopefully come out of it successfully. But how many times have we seen where officers get injured um, or end up collapsing of a heart attack, massive heart attack? Because one, they never went and got their yearly checkups. They never took care of their high blood pressure, never took care of their high cholesterol, um, rarely worked out. In fact, they were spending way too much time at Dunkin' Donuts. um, When they should have been, you know, spending a little bit of time in the gym, I know, you know, we allowed our officers to work out on duty. And I I advocate for any police department that if you can work out a on-duty workout plan, please do that please allow your officers the ability to work out on duty or on shift if you can. Uh, I know schedules are getting tight and manpower is getting tight. And I have a whole nother opinion on that of how we could resolve it, but, or at least sort of resolve it, but allow your officers the opportunity to keep fit and and that they do it on duty. It needs to be part of the culture of the department, Uh, but don't lessen standards. You know, at the end of the day, I told the one commissioner, I said, please, please do not lessen these standards. I know you're going to have some political pressure thrown on your shoulders. I know that it's not going to be easy, but do not cave into this. You cannot. But what you do need to do is you guys need to get out of the ice age because you've been told several times. Get out of the ice age and get with the times and get a job task obstacle course in play and get it rolling. Other states have done it. They've, they have the legal backing on it. They've been challenged in court. So utilize, you know, what other states have gone through. And I guess it, it bothers me that, you know, the state of Ohio used to be really progressive in law enforcement. We used to be cutting edge. We were always right at the top. Other people were following, you know, what is what's Ohio doing? What's Ohio doing? To all of a sudden, we're eating dust of other other states, and that just drives me nuts. We need to be striving to be number one. We need to be pushing to be number one. Well, um, I can attest, right. I can attest to that on a
0: couple, of, you know, respects. The uh, you know, Ohio built the uh, tactical training center in London, and uh, I went over there for several different schools and we always had fantastic this was a late 90s uh, early 2000s some some fantastic training um also went to a basic squat school at um uh, uh, that the Columbus PD put on Excellent. Uh, just a just a fantastic program um yeah so it was uh yeah but i you know i think all all states are kind of reeling a little bit right now and everyone is is thinking about the future in their in, in this Manning and personnel crisis, there is opportunity here and that's the message that I want to make sure that chiefs are carrying, you know, they got to grab that, uh, that, that flag and they've got to carry it and um, being silent at a time like this, it's easy, um, you know, and it's, you know, it's easy to kind of put shields up and duck and cover and, and hope to make it through. But I think what we're learning is, uh, you know, even since 2014 and 15, that time frame and the post-Ferguson era, you know, we we have these waves of, you know, positive public sentiment, negative sentiment, positive, negative, and these these steeps and valleys are getting, you know, the peaks are getting lower and the valleys are getting deeper, and I I I fear that we we've got a few more years of Of hardship in front of us before the public fully recognizes the 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 disaster that's waiting at the end of these tracks and lowering standards is all you're doing is uh accelerating the rate of the train putting more weight on it and it's coming to an end (laughs) well you just don't want it happening in your community and sadly it's going to happen in
1: communities that that need the police the most aren't going to have them well, you know, there's a there's an interesting initiative right now that I have been at our state house talking with several representative state representatives and senators, and it all has to do with baseline standards for our law enforcement leadership. And it was kind of an epiphany for me last year after watching all like you were talking, these peaks and valleys, I call it our circle, and yep. we just keep going in circles round and round and round. And I teach a class on change management and strategic planning. And in those classes, I talk about the fact that, you know, if you're continuing to go in circles without any change of your circle, you might have a problem. You might need to re-envision what that circle looks like. Maybe that circle is a square. Maybe it's an oval. Maybe it's some other kind of shape, but you're a circle and you're continuing to go round, 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 and nothing's happening. So... With all that being said, it finally dawned on me that here in Ohio, there is a requirement for sheriffs to be a sheriff. So it's revised code section on 311.01. And in order to be a sheriff in the state of Ohio, you have to have certain things. Well, it's interesting that none of the police chiefs have to have that. So I'm asking, why not? Why are just the sheriffs now the standard for sheriffs is a little archaic. It, it, it hasn't been resolved, revised in about 20 some years. So I'm proposing some revisions to it that we need to kind of increase the bar a little bit in terms of education and baseline law enforcement education training that needs to take place. But we also need that standard for every police chief here in the state. And here is why I, here's why I'm so passionate about this. And this is no dig on the one police chief here in Ohio that was celebrated in the public, in the media, as the youngest police chief in the state of Ohio. He's 21 years old, or was 21 at the time, and he's being celebrated for that. Now, it has nothing to do with his personality, but in my mind, what is that chief going to be able to do? What what background, what knowledge, what base does he come with that makes him prepared to be a police chief? There's a lot of decisions that have to be made. There's a lot of critical thinking that you need some experience in order to make educated decisions, but yet there's no standard. There's nothing. Now, some will argue OK, so here in the state of Ohio, when you become a sheriff, you have to have man- there's mandatory training, which, by the way, they have to have one hundred and twenty hours for a police chief. They only have to have 40. So yeah, why 40 the difference? In so why the difference? So I've I've I, in my proposal, I've got a couple of things to to level that out and make it fair for both sides. But but it's also some very specific training that needs to take place. But in Ohio. Um, about four to five years ago, they put a rule in that if you become a chief, you have to go through 40 hours of training. It's kind of interesting when you look at the history of that, it took over eight years of a police chief that had that vision in order to get that put into play for the benefit of our officers or the benefit of chiefs here in the state. They, they, they had to fight to get that.
0: And that is a benefit to the officers, by the way.
1: It is a benefit. I have I don't argue that every chief needs to go through that training, but I do argue that those chiefs need to have a baseline of knowledge and experience before ever going into that seat. So I'm having these conversations at the state house, and, you know, it hasn't developed into a bill yet. We certainly hope it will. And when I say we there's several other chiefs that are behind me on this, I'm just the vocal one. And the one willing to go down and meet them right now. But once we get on the floor with a bill, um, but I also know that there's some sheriffs and chiefs out there that that think I'm absolutely nuts. There's absolutely no way. But here's the interesting part the in- interesting part that I'm finding out the ones that are the naysayers wouldn't qualify. And and here's well, my point that, and, to and that. That's one, what too. they're concerned about. They're they're concerned about their own self-preservation not the benefit that that could bring to law enforcement in the state of Ohio, or, you know, if anybody else wants to incorporate that in their state, great. I'll, you know, give me a call. I'll help you. I can't, you know, unless you're going to pay me to fly out there for testimony, but I'll help you put some stuff together and and talk about it, but they wouldn't qualify. And here's, you know, if they're in that seat and they still would not qualify What are you doing to better yourself as a chief, as a sheriff? Are you going and getting certifications? Are you going and doing the Police Executive Leadership College, which is a phenomenal program? Are you doing the Certified Law Enforcement Executive Program that we have here in Ohio? Ohio's CLEE program, by the way, is nationally known, so much so that other states send their chiefs to Ohio to take that program. It's tough it's hard, but it's worth it. But again, some of these people are not even doing anything once even they have the seat. And it's like, what are you doing to better yourself, to better your officers and better your department? So that's kind of the the legislative movement that I have going on right now. So rather than reduce standards, what are we doing to increase standards for law enforcement? I mean, right now here in Ohio, we've got a bill that's been introduced to take the age of a police officer from 21 down to 18. And I'll tell you what, as soon as I heard that, I cringed. Because, you know, from my detective years um, and reading a lot of books about neuroscience, you know, the human brain is not fully developed till about 25 or 26 years of age. Now, I don't proclaim to be a scientist nor an expert in this area. I am doing a lot more reading on it right now. And I know you and I talked very briefly about that. But I'm, I'm an NF1 makes... there.
0: I can tell you it was about 27, 28 for me. What? <laughs>
1: Some might argue longer, but <laughs> hey. Yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't 21. I can tell you that. Yeah, no way. Um, and there's no way at 21, I should have ever been a police officer. I didn't have the mental capacity and the discipline to be able to do that. But why is that a good idea? Why are we lessening the standards just for the sake of getting bodies to be able to hire? So, you know, I talk about the circle, right? Chiefs, sheriffs, step out of your circle and start looking outside your circle, start looking outside your box. I don't care what you want to call it, but start looking outside something and start looking at opportunities ideas that have been out there for years. Um, one of the things that I I have been supporting is looking at civilianization of some of these positions within, within law enforcement. So give me an example. Why does it take a state certified police officer to do the background investigations for hiring for your department? How about hire one of your retired detectives And I know some departments have been doing this. Um, Columbus Police Department's been doing it. I'll give them a shout out real quick. They've been hiring some of their former detectives to come back in on the civilian side to do all the background investigations, to do low-level investigations. That's great. That's thinking outside the box. I just got done last year teaching a, a department in property room and evidence management. They hosted a class. I went and taught it and three police officers, they have three uniformed officers managing their property and evidence room. Now, if I'm a chief, they won't be in there. They're going to be out on the street where I need them. I'm going to hire three civilians to be in that property and evidence room. But it was funny. We went to dinner that night. So it's it's a two-day class. We went to dinner And I started to ask the why questions. Well, why? Why do you do it that way? Well, you one, the answer was, we've always done it that way, and we don't want to change. Even though they know they need to, they don't want to change. But it's like, but why? Well, civilians can't do it. They can't do as good a job. And I I argue that. I think sometimes the civilians can do a better job. You know, there's a lot of retired or there's a lot of librarians, degreed librarians with master's degrees who are really good at organizing, who are really good at cataloging. Why not go hire them? Why not get them in those positions? They're going to do a fantastic job. I can show you department after department after department where they civilianized the property and evidence room with tremendous success. In fact, so much success that other agencies started to take notice. And in fact, let's start thinking outside the box a little bit. Why do we have to have one property and evidence room? Why don't you go in with a multi-agency property and evidence room? Why don't you bring together three or four departments and have a, a single large scale where you all share the costs, you have civilians operate it and be able to modernize it and have a modern day property and evidence room? So, you know, and in fact, you know, we talk about the dark side, right? Um, A lot of these defense (laughs) attorneys are getting wise to how bad a lot of these property and evidence rooms are. And they're starting to ask the questions and it's starting to make a lot of people nervous in the courtroom because they're starting to find out that the evidence that they thought was safe and properly cataloged and chain of custody um, ain't so much. So... All that being said, why are we lessening standards? Why can we not think outside the box? As leaders, that's what we're getting paid to do. But we're so ingrained in our culture and our past that we can't see beyond it. And when you start seeing beyond all of those things, you you start to realize you've got a, a wide open range of opportunity untapped. That's going to make a huge difference for for your officers, huge difference for your department and agency, huge for the community that you serve, and actually for your budget. So just, you know, again, stop dropping standards. Stop, you know, the standard dropping in order just to hire bodies. Start thinking about the opportunities that you have in front of you and could have if you're just willing to step out into the unknown.
0: Yeah. A lot, a lot to unpack there. And yeah. Civilianization I think is um, it's one of the forced byproducts of a, of a difficult staffing environment. And, and until you're in the position where you're really forced to think about things like this, it's just easier not to. And I think that's generally why changes don't happen. They're not, we don't make changes until it's, until it's forced upon us or something really bad happens. And yeah. that's, and, and you can make the same analogy and from a wellness perspective, right? Like you can, you can provide all the wellness opportunities in the world for your officers, but if there's not a mandate and there's not a thing that forces them, guess, guess when they get motivated, right? When they get the cancer diagnosis, when they get the, uh, when they have a heart attack, um, when they find out that they're a type two diabetic and that's, you know, that's very unfortunate. Um, it's, uh, because Gordon Graham says it all the time, right? When, a lot of times you were talking, I'm going, uh-huh. You know, Graham. If you, yeah. If you've ever been to his presentations, you know, nope. his famous, uh-huh. Uh, exactly. and, his, and his, you know, his mantra, right? If it's predictable, it's preventable. It's preventable. And yeah, the, so many of these things are predictable from a wellness perspective, from a fitness standards perspective, from a property and evidence perspective. Uh, yeah, we civilianized our operations, probably oh hell i think it has to be at least 15 years ago uh and our civilians do a a fantastic job and yeah there are you know oftentimes so what what tends to happen is you get somebody gets injured gets on light duty is having disciplinary issues can't put them out on the streets So where you put them right and um you know sometimes you know under under the right circumstances that maybe that's not a bad you know not a bad way uh way to use manpower but it's not, you know, but that's not a, a going to solve any of your problems down the road. And right, um, yeah, it, you know, it, the, but there's also a, a a thread that I think weaves all these these things together, right? And what it boils down to is budgets, funding, and spending, because that's that's what makes it all go. That's what makes training go. And I wanted to kind of go back a little bit. You know, talk about the academy environment. You know, I I spent two years on our law enforcement training board. uh, You know, at the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy, so that was my opportunity to kind of get a peek behind the curtain to you know to really get a feel for all the things that the academy is responsible for. You know, what the executive director is doing. You know, what his staff is doing, and um, you know. One of the and and I actually uh, so Tim Horty, we have uh did an uh, an early episode on the podcast with him. He's a retired uh, deputy chief from Indy Metro Police, and then he went to he worked for the uh, state attorney general's office for a while. But you know the challenge that you have there, right? Is and and this is what I want to kind of you know segue into next because the proposal that you're you're mentioning, right? Is you know the the what's the funding bucket that, you know, where's your spend at the academy? And then who's responsible? Because it's different in every state. And, and so in Indiana, is it gonna be the academy that's gonna be responsible for the training, for the housing and the training and all that spend? Or does the agency need to make that, you know, do they make, make it part of their budget expense? I'm gonna pay to send my my officer down there because here's, here's what, oh, from a fitness perspective, here here's what some chiefs will argue and this is what a, an executive director has to try to balance when you have a curriculum if you're if you have a state mandated curriculum and we could even talk about the hours right because i i think most people again in the, on the civilian side of things and i've talked about this many times would be shocked to realize how low uh the barrier to entry is you know how right. few of hours police officers actually do have to to be mandated in training but even with that, when when a when an officer goes to our central academy, um, they're they're going from or they're being paid by their police department to be there. And now, if you have x amount of hours that are your your training is your it's laid out right. Your itinerary right. is laid out. Your syllabus for everything that you need to cover, all the boxes that you need to cover and check uh, to move to advance people through you know, that now comes down to a time equation in physical fitness and fitness is just one. It's one of those items that are on there. I think it's a very important one. And and so now it's how do you prioritize that? But if you if you don't have enough time and you don't have the budget and you're not given the resources that now you have to make decisions about what's going to get cut and what's not. And now you have. a. So if I want to do extra fitness training, we call it extra, but that's just going and working out for an hour at the end of your day or at the beginning of your day. Guess what? Guess what officers are saying? Well, I I want to be paid for that hour. So they complain, you know, they're making complaints back to their, to their sheriff or their their chief. And now, and now the academy is left with trying to manage overtime issues. And then the sheriffs and the chiefs are saying, I can't afford the overtime. And, and that's a legitimate concern on their end. So what's the end product when when we're pinching pennies and and making, you know, quite frankly, it, it sounds like a silly argument. And I think anyone listening would be like, well, that's just crazy. Fix it. Um, but where do you fix it? Do you fix it at the local level? Do you fix it at the state level? Is there a federal intervention that we need to provide training? And this, so this leads into this whole other question about police training in general about you know, what the standards should be, what the, you know, and, and anytime you start talking about this, then you have another segment that's like, Oh, you can't nationalize the police. You know, that's, they, they want the federal police force. That's what they are working towards. I still don't know who they are yet. I'm trying to figure out right. who they are. Uh There's somewhere, somewhere behind the curtain somewhere pulling all of these crazy strings, but uh, you yeah. Yeah. Poor executive director is just trying to get through the day and get his, you know, make sure he's training people to the best of his ability. And to, and sheriffs and chiefs just want their officers, you know, they want to be confident and know that when they when their officers come back, that that they're coming back with a basic, you know, they call these basic classes. These are not advanced law enforcement right. training courses. It's basic. You know, this is and, and what I mean by that is this is the minimum standard. This is the minimum standard that we want as a as the entry level police officer, right? So you know, and you can't replace that. You know, you can't replace a twenty year veteran with with a one year officer. It just
1: no. And there's tremendous inconsistency. Um, Giving an example, so you can take an academy class here in Ohio. Which, by the way, it's kind of interesting. We have up to sixty police academies in the state. It's it's a it's an astronomical number. And it's almost ridiculous. And I've got tremendous opinion about it. Um, I think it's too much. And we can go down that path. I, w- and just I would agree. Um, because there's no consistency in the training and the education. Right. Um, you can go from one academy that is like the top notch. I mean, they have got their stuff together to the mom and pop shop academy where they look like a bunch of slobs and the instructor's. I, I don't even know how they're instructors. So, but, you know, at the end of the day, it, it's, the training's not enough. There's not enough hours. But the inconsistency in terms of coming out of the academy. So you talk about FTO, right? Field training. You could take an officer coming out of the academy, going to maybe like a big city or, you know, where I was at at Mansfield. And I had four months. I had to do four months of FTO. Solid. You, There's no way around it you have to complete it. You can't even complete it early. You have to complete every single bit of it. Great experience. I had great FTOs when I was going through that program, and I I treasure it to this day. But how about an officer coming out of the academy that goes to maybe a smaller department that they're desperate to even just get an officer out on the road? Well, here's your ticket book. Here's a map of the village or the city. Um, if you need anything, holler on the radio. Good luck. Yeah, here's your gun that's and happening. bullets and and uh, your the keys to your squad. Yep, there's no there's no minimum mandatory requirement beyond the basic academy. So, that's where each individual agency is there's so much inconsistency that it's no wonder officers sometimes have difficulty because they're not going through a traditional FTO program. Um, and I advocate that needs to be mandatory. You know, coming out of the academy, that's just basic. But at the same time in Ohio, they only need, I think it's 752 hours. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, before I came on this. And we were talking about the curriculum. And I believe it was 752 hours. It changes here and there by a couple hours, give or take. Um, God forbid you want to increase the hours because the academy commanders, some of them will like chew your head off um because i went through that let me tell you but that's not enough barbers beauticians in the state of ohio have to have 1500 hours so i mean as you can tell i have a lot of hair right on my head but they need 1500 hours to cut that hair or lack thereof
0: but oh, a they don't saucer, get license. They need, there's
1: no license they only need 752 that's not enough that that's not even nearly enough You know, we go back to our original conversation when we were talking about Second Amendment and First Amendment audits and all of that. You've got officers coming out that don't even really understand the Bill of Rights. They don't understand how to properly apply Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment. You know, think about all those common threads of those amendments that I just rattled off that law enforcement absolutely have to have and know. But we aren't putting, we are not putting enough emphasis on that learning, but also its application. So the one thing that I advocate here for Ohio is somewhat of the Kentucky model. And I know they've been looking into it. So out of fairness, I want to, you know, I want to at least say or acknowledge that there's been some discussion about it, but what they're doing with it, I don't know, I'm not hundred percent on board, but here's what I recommend. Do similar to the Kentucky model. You put a a tax on every insurance policy for a driver. So if you drive a car, there's going to be a small tax, just like a gas tax or whatever. For Kentucky, I believe they bring in a lot of, I mean, we're talking millions of dollars. Here's what I advocate. So you were talking about kind of like federal level. You know, we need to have kind of a federal standard Part of that I buy into, if you look at every academy across the nation, there are certain standards that every officer in America needs to know and understand. Agreed. I think I think you could regulate that. There's probably ways that that could be done. I would just need to see it out, lay it out on paper. But I'm just going to talk about the state of Ohio. Get rid of the 60 academies. Go down to one academy that every police officer has to go to. We pay them 15 bucks an hour to go to the academy. They're there Monday through Friday. Give them the weekends off. Um, You know, Columbus Police Department does that. I think Cincinnati, Dayton, Toledo, they already do that. Um, Our state highway patrol, Ohio State Highway Patrol Academy is amazing. Those guys are phenomenal. I love those instructors down there. They are just top notch. Um, So there's my shout out to them, but they deserve it. They they really run an excellent academy, but I advocate for one academy, and I think Kentucky has four. So fine, put four academies in throughout the state quadrant. Right, you can break the state up in quadrants. But That's the way we do it in
0: Indiana one central, and then uh, we have a couple you know geographically located throughout the state, just to
1: you know to ease the the financial burden on agencies and trying to get yeah. people to that academy, and through that tax. They're going to pay the salary of that officer. So if a person wants to be in the academy, but maybe they're not on a full-time department. Okay. In the law, we make a provision that if they want to go to the academy, their current employer has to allow them to be able to go and they have a job when they come back. So let's protect them. But we allow them to be able to go. They go full-time Monday through Friday. We pay them to be there. We make sure that they have health insurance that while they're there, you know, for their families because there are people that are married and need to be able to go. So I advocate we be able to cover them top to bottom, no burden on any city or village. They get through that basic academy. Then if Columbus, Toledo, Dayton, Cincinnati, they want to agency specific train them, then that's great. They can, you know, okay, you get out of the basic academy then you're going to be in those academies for another five or six weeks in order to learn their way of doing it. Okay, fine. But there's no burden on any one village or one city or whatever. But here's the greater part of it. We gain consistency through instruction. Because right now, you've got how many legal instructors in the state of Ohio teaching the legal section for those 60 academies. Let's say maybe right now there's only 50 academies going. And I'm okay. sure they
0: all agree on everything.
1: Oh, <laughs> 100%, right? I I remember my legal instructor. He opened up the book. We started at chapter uh, chapter 29 and worked our way through. And he read verbatim everything. Now, how are you going to learn that? But then, you know, years later, I become an academy instructor and I'm I'm shadowing a guy that's teaching the legal section. This guy, oh my gosh, he was freaking amazing how he was able to take the code, how he was able to teach the Bill of Rights, how he was able to tie all the stuff together. He used scenarios, examples, all these things. He was engaging the students. I'm going... We need more of that, but there's no consistency. So here then I take over as executive. Well, not even that, just before that, you know, I'm teaching for a couple academies and I'm watching other instructors and how they teach. And I'm not being critical of some of my colleagues, but I'm gonna be for a few of them because they should have never been in the classroom. They taught the curriculums. Let's say they had a two hour block. They taught the curriculum in about 15 minutes and then they spent the other hour and 45 minutes watching YouTube videos. Now, please explain to me how that's consistency in training. But again, unless the inspector was there monitoring the the instructor, there was no consistency. And I'm going, you've got to be freaking kidding me. This is what's teaching in our academies. This is what's teaching these officers. What are you teaching the officers? So that's why I advocate we either need to go down to four academies. They're quadrated throughout the state. And it's run by the state, paid by the state, and that's where everybody has to go. And every instructor is a state instructor, full-time, Monday through Friday, that's all they do. And you're getting the top of the top, the best of the best. Because the end product will come out so much better. And
0: um, in a previous episode, too, uh, I'll get your opinion on this, there's a lot of discussion about how internationally some places are training their police departments, Australia, uh, the Europe, you know, what they call the European model, uh, for police training, but these are two and four year college programs where people are going through a track and, you know, and there are like Indiana university has a really good program here in the state of Indiana where they, they actually have an academy in, as part of the university and it's recognized uh, and it's monitored under the umbrella of the law enforcement training Academy. It's the only one in the state. Um, And it's, you know, so that's, that's one model that this two to four year model, I think provides some really good opportunities for uh, continuous education, you know, a really well-rounded police officer. Uh, Maybe one of the more important things is being able to, track the progress of a candidate over a much longer span to ensure that they have, that they have the ability, that they have the maturity and that, you know, that they're getting, and not just for agencies and for States, but also for individuals. Like I, you know, how do I know that this is the right profession for me? And maybe I, maybe I'm in this program for two years because nobody changes their major in college. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everybody gets in there. They know exactly what they're going to do now. Typically, you know, on the policing side, historically, we've been able to find more mature adults, people that are in their mid 20s, late 20s, even early 30s. And and now in cases, people coming out of the military after a full careers as a military coming in and doing. Um, but and and those are generally really good candidates. Um, and you're and you're always your biggest question marks always around your very young inexperienced. So I wanted to touch on that real quick because the idea of an 18 year old being a police officer, I, I'll just be blunt on this one. I think that's just that's just dumb. I mean, totally agree. You know, when you start, and that that'll be one of those things. I it's the Pete Blaber rule, right? You know, say it out loud. Uh, he's a yeah. He's kind of, got <laughs> right. a when I saw him present and he said that, I just it stuck with me. It's never left me. Like if I'm about ready to do something incredibly dumb or stupid, what I should do is say it out loud. And if I hear myself say it and it still sounds crazy, I probably shouldn't do it. So you know, for That's anybody right. right now that says you know, just say it out loud, I think it's a good idea to hire 18 year olds right out of high school, send them through a 40 hour course, give them a gun a squad car with some lights and a siren on it and let him have at it now. And I know Good that
1: ma- don't get killed.
0: Yeah. yeah. What could go wrong? Ugh. So Ugh. I mean, now I, I know that's, I'm little, that I'm being a little, being a little simplistic, but no way.
1: Absolutely. No way.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, when you, and so this, uh, this conversation kind of it, and again, I want to go back to cause the, at the central of all this is funding, what what's your budget? And you know this is where this is where communities and and the conversation has to be had. And this is where chiefs have to be courageous. They have to speak out. They have to say things that maybe maybe their bosses don't want to hear. I, I was very fortunate. You know, my my boss was a uh, he was a former police officer. So I, there was not there were very few things that I ever had to explain to him uh, that you know that he didn't already have a fundamental understanding of, you know, and so I was in a good position there, but not everybody is. But at, you know, you know, if we're going to demand a higher level of police service and professionalism, you can't undercut that opportunity by cutting funding. Right. Because now now we're devolving into these arguments about, well, okay, well, maybe, you know, you know, Sally or Nancy and Johnny and Jimmy can't make it. O- Sorry for all those names. They can't make <laughs> it over the fence or they can't do the right number of push-ups. but we'll make an exception for them because they're really nice and we need them. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that just, it would never fly in the civilian sector. Nobody no. would ever hire somebody that didn't meet their standards. And, and to expect us to do that in policing is just, it's just catastrophic. It's just going to have, and the problem is, is you don't feel the repercussions until years down the road. And so, uh, you know, the hot stove effect applies here. If I touch the stove and burn myself, guess what? I'm not doing that again, but if I can't associate that pain with the heat and I don't know where it's coming from, then I, I might never make that, that analogy and, and that's, that we, we make decisions this year and now three years from now, five years from now. And, and Memphis is a good example of this, right? You cut corners in your hiring process, you change, yep. or you have somebody outside of the police doing your hiring. And without understanding why it's so critical to do extensive background checks to ensure that you have the character and the integrity and you've passed the psych exams, all of these things. Well, th- that's why. <laughs> Because we've exactly. already we've learned these lessons in the past. Now we've just forgotten them, so it's time to repeat them. And so, yeah, it's just not. I I I get my my blood pressure starts to go up, and I and I just I go. So we we need funding, and then we could. I you know the 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 idea of how good things could be with the right funding is just. I I think that's what's exciting when you think about it. Man, imagine. Imagine if we could use the military model where we send people through a basic level course uh, to get them hired. And then we send them to an advanced level course. And then we send them to another advanced level course. Uh, and then, oh, guess what? We've had them tra- in a training cycle for two years. And now you go operational. And now you've been operational for six months. Guess what? We're going to pull you back in. We're going to put you in a rest cycle. We're going to let you recover. And now we're going to go, we're going to take the next three months and we're going to train again on all right. the things that we've learned. And we're going to repeat that. So but that re- that would require three to four times
1: the number of police officers that we have today. Exactly. And yeah, the it's system's not prepared for it, but it could get there. But again, it's like anything that's good. It had to start somewhere and it had to start from a conversation, just like you and I are having right now. Yeah. which is now a national broadcast. So the idea is there. Now we just got to bring the level heads to the table to make it happen. And, it, and we're more like the parent, right? I made this analogy a couple of weeks ago with a representative that I was speaking with. I said, you have to be the parent because right now the kids are out of control. And, we've, and if we're going to get control of this thing, which is spinning out of control, it's going to take a parent to step in, make the tough decisions, sometimes the unpopular decisions. But, you know, I used to work for somebody that shot a bunch of my ideas down for the mere sake of votes. Well, that's not going to get me voted in the next time. I, you know, I, I it's too risky. I got to wait till the second time. And then we can start making some decisions that didn't come from the office holder came from people that were working for that person. Yep. But I, you know, it's that kind of mentality that you're up against. And I said, somebody has got to step in and do the right thing, take politics and throw it out with the bathwater. Somebody needs to step up and do the right thing. And, you know, if I'm getting criticism, and if somebody thinks, oh, my God, this retired chief, thank God he's retired. Um, <laughs> you know, my voice is not done because i you know, I, I, I'm around a lot of good people. And these aren't just my ideas. But it takes voices like you and I to step up and say, come on, we've got to do the right thing here. I know it's going to be painful. I know this is not going to be comfortable. I know the thought or idea that you're going to have to have a a yearly you know JTA obstacle course that you're going to have to go through. But guess what? We're going to save your life. We're going to prolong your life. We're going to allow you to have a better experience and opportunity with your kids, your grandkids, other people, and actually get to enjoy retirement. But they won't see the benefits of that decision-making for years. But I'll promise you they'll look back on it. And say, "Oh my God, uh, Jeff and Pat were right. And why didn't we do this a lot sooner? We could have saved a lot more people. Could have saved a lot more lives if we would have had the courage to just step up and do the right thing."
0: Yeah, and uh, I know we're we're at that uh, ninety yeah. minute mark. It, it go it goes super fast, and when you get really passionate about this, so. Um, I think that's 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 probably a good place to kind of wind it down. Um with with that in mind, you know, I, I just a couple of things to kind of to wrap it all up. We I think we both agree that standards need to be high. And I I don't know that you'll find anyone that that will argue that you lower standards are better. Lower standards are going to improve policing. And that that's the say it out loud rule, right? Right. Um, that's so. Like, hey, City Council. Hey, Ohio Training Board. What I propose is that we lower standards so we can improve our police officers. Um, and, 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 say it out but loud. Hear hear yourself saying. I know. It's uh, because it's a, and the same thing is happening in New York City right now too. Uh, it's not just yes. in Ohio. It's all over the country because right. this is the byproduct of an environment that is unfavorable. To policing, so this is one of and and if police leaders don't speak out about this, if we don't raise our voices, guess what? The public doesn't know. They don't recognize. They're not out in the squad car every night. They don't realize that y- y- people are being forced to work overtime because agencies are thirty percent short because nobody's coming, nobody's right. signing up anymore, and then everybody that's eligible for retirement is on their way. Like yeah, I'm moving on to the next thing, and then even more frightening is the number of people in that first three to five years that leave the profession outright. Uh, yeah. That is not a historical problem. That is a that is a, a new phenomenon that we have to adjust to. And then I, I had a a great conversation with Matt Dolan from the Dolan Consulting Group, and you know he, they Richard Johnson, you know Dr. Yeah. Richard Johnson. I'm sure you know him. But yes, he wrote this this seminal document, you know, weathering the storm and police staffing. Well, yeah. uh, you know, one thing that people aren't even talking about is the actual population that's being that's that's aging into the policing profession is sinking. It's it, it's shrinking significantly. So there's not even enough people coming. So not right. all, you you don't have enough people coming, and then the people that you do have don't want to do this. Everything else is is high, more competitive. And now, now you have this recipe for disaster on the streets of America. And I, I say this, this is not a political statement. It's just this is where it just becomes a matter of will that and I this you know whether you're for or against the you know American support for what's going on in Ukraine, it's irrelevant. But here my point is is that after George Floyd, every major metropolitan city in America had huge problems. I mean, even cities my size, we had significant problems, you know, demonstrations that cost thousands upon thousands of dollars in equipment and manpower and overtime. Those were expensive endeavors. And, you know, and I didn't even have a police department burned down. Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I saw I saw an estimate. And again, I don't know where the math was done on this, but someone estimated that it was close that, that those riots in that period of time cost the american taxpayer close to 2 billion dollars and, and you know the economic recovery in, in the long term um you know in some of those cities still haven't recovered and this yeah. this is the crux you know public safety is an economic driver it may be your number one ec- economic dri- driver in your community if your community is not safe jobs are not coming there they're leaving right. they're going to where they are safe and so when we can find 20 billion dollars 40 billion dollars like that to send overseas uh why can't we find two you imagine how long how far two billion dollars would go to improving policing in America one yep, two million dollar investment one10 billion dollar investment um yeah I mean, we, we wouldn't be having some of these conversations we could solve a lot of problems. Uh, you know,
1: but I digress. Yeah. Maybe you and I need to run for president and vice president. Maybe we can get <laughs> some things done. Well, yeah, go but ahead. I also like term limits too. So flat tax and term limits, but that's a whole nother discussion.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It sure is. And, uh, well, Hey, this wow. has been, this has been great. Um, I I do like, I do want to close on a couple of things, right? Um, I like to ask um, a few questions. So for listeners, um, number one is books. I'm a huge reader. I know you're, I know you're a reader. So uh, if, uh, what's your, what's your number one go-to recommended book for, for young leaders in policing?
1: Well, it's actually, they're on my shelf right behind me. And the ones that i have up here that i haven't well i actually got a couple of them back um the <laughs> one's called its your ship um it's basically about a ship's captain uh abershoff and how he led from the front and i love love that book um another one is called drive d r i v e yeah daniel pinks book yeah and uh, another one's why zebras, uh, don't have ulcers or why zebras don't get ulcers. is that's, another Robert, one.
0: that's Robert Sapolsky. So for people that have never, have never read any of Sapolsky's work, um, you, you really need to, if you want to understand stress and the impact of stress on the human body, um, there you go.
1: The Absolutely.
0: Body, Bessel Vanderkolk, by the way, uh, he, he wrote a book called the body keeps the score and, um. Uh, if you've never read that one, I would add that one to your <laughs> add it to your reading list because, it, yeah, it looks like you got it already.
1: Yeah, um, I'm I'm pulling this this one. It's called uh, No Bullshit Leadership by Martin Moore. It's an it's a really good book, um, and I love Extreme Ownership. Yeah, I think this is this book probably of all the books that I have on leadership right now is my go-to. Because after reading this book, you may actually get passionate like we are, especially on these kind of topics, and especially when it comes to a career that I absolutely love. And somebody asked, you know, if you had to do it all over again, would you go back into law enforcement? Would you go back to the academy and do it all over again? And I will tell you unequivocally, absolutely, I would. I love this career. I love the opportunities. Yes. Did I make mistakes? Yes. Would I change some things? Yes. But I won't change the experiences. I won't change the mentoring. I won't change the opportunities that people gave me. Um, But own it. Own it and do something with it. Because, you know, the other part of this is too, and I've, I've heard people say this. And this goes back to what you were saying about fixing things. A lot of leaders don't want to fix anything because they they will say, well, I only have a year. I only have two years to go. I just need to get through this and I'll get my retirement and I am done, I'm walking away. And I think that's a really bad attitude to have because it's really our obligation to pay it forward. And we pay it forward by setting things up to be way better than how we found it. So it's all a matter of attitude. And it's a matter of extreme ownership. It's owning what you are responsible for because your legacy is going to be built on the decisions you made, but it's also going to be built or or judged on what you didn't do when you had the opportunity to do it because you didn't have the guts to do it. And you should have shown leadership and extreme ownership and taken charge of the bull and got it on the right direction. And after reading this book, if it doesn't inspire you to take ownership of the difficulties that we have right now, and for the chiefs that are in in positions that they're in right now, I mean, we have the luxury as retired chiefs to sit here and have this conversation. But it's what we're telling the current chiefs, the current sheriffs, if you're not doing the right thing for your officers, retire. Get the hell out and let people in there that are actually going to do it and and have a legacy that people are going to look back and go, oh my God, they owned that. Look what they did. Look what they were able to accomplish. And look what they did for the officers in the department and set them up for success and set them down the road to be amazing. And I have had the privilege to watch some chiefs. Uh, Chief Mobitzer, um, I highly respect that chief. He was freaking amazing. He is the extreme ownership police chief um, that I learned from, that I got to 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 watch as a growing chief and to have the privilege to talk to him and, and watch him work as a chief. And what he did for his department to set them up was nothing short of amazing. But he owned it. He took ownership of it. He took charge of it and made the tough decisions and got it done. That's what we have to have. That's the grit that's going to get us through this issue or issues that are going on. But I just don't see enough chiefs or sheriffs stepping up to the plate because a lot of them are like, whatever, not a lot. There are some that are out there, whatever I can do, I just got to get the hell out of Dodge. And that is the wrong mentality to have. If that's your mentality right now, then just get the hell out of Dodge. Just leave because you're not doing anybody any good and you're and you're putting your officers at risk. So why not leave right now if you're not going to do anything and let people in there, again, making sure that we have qualified people in those leadership positions.
0: All right, I'm going to leave it at that. No more comments. Great closing. So thank you, Uh Chief Jeffrey Scott. I really appreciate you spending some of your valuable time with us. And uh, yeah, that
1: was, that was fun. That was a great talk. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege. This was really an honor and a privilege and I hope we get to do it again.
0: Hey, you know, we're going to have to do it again. We left too many things on the table here. I, know. I, I got like eight things on my notes that I've like, didn't even touch on. So.
1: Oh my gosh. No shortage uh, right there. So I guess we're going to gonna have to come back. That's it.
0: All right. Until that time. I'm 1042.